Welcome to The Dream Show. I'm Jane Theresa Anderson and this is episode 270-270. And during 2023, we're departing from our usual podcast format to bring you the audio version of my most recent book, Bird of Paradise, subtitled Taming the Unconscious to Bring Your Dreams to Fruition. Today's episode is part five of the 10-part series. And each episode is standalone, but you will get maximum enjoyment if you begin with part one, which is episode 266. If you love the guest format, don't worry, it will return in late November 2023 when we've delivered all 10 episodes of Bird of Paradise. And remember, you can go back through every single episode of The Dream Show all the way back to our first episode in 2009 and listen to my conversations with our guests as we explore their dreams. You can do all of that at janeteresa.com. That's Teresa without an H. And publishing the audio version of Bird of Paradise through the podcast means there's no fee for you. But if you'd like to express your appreciation and enjoyment, I'd like to encourage you to buy the paperback version for yourself or as a gift for a friend or two. Thank you. If you've missed the previous episodes of Bird of Paradise, here's a quote from the back cover to give you an idea of what's in store as you listen. Birds of Paradise is an inspirational guide to finding your calling and navigating your life using dreams, mysteries and alchemy. It's part whimsical memoir, part healing balm and part alchemical guide and it delivers my down-to-earth tools and techniques for decoding dreams and synchronicities as well as my unique signature alchemy practices that enable you to flow and grow with life's challenges, paradoxes and mysteries. So here we go, part five. Eyebright, Euphrasia officinalis. Trees grew leaves to replace the green clouds that had floated around them. Eyesight. As a young girl growing up in England, I was intrigued by the team of white-coated people who arrived at our school one week calling on each class in turn to line up outside the principal's office and read letters from a chart propped up against the wall. Special children came away with envelopes addressed to their parents. I was five years old and I hoped I would be special enough to take home one of those envelopes. As the days passed, I heard that the visitors had come to test our eyesight and that the letters were for those singled out to wear glasses. My wish escalated. Ah, wouldn't I be really special if Mum and Dad had to take me to choose glasses? I guess I must have wished pretty hard for a five-year-old because by the time I got to the front of the line, I couldn't see the big letter at the top of the chart, and I've worn glasses or contact lenses ever since. It was a revelation to me a few weeks after taking home the precious envelope to discover that houses were made of bricks that went all the way up to their roofs rather than being brick near the ground and then a kind of reddish smudge the rest of the way up. Trees grew leaves to replace the green clouds that had floated around them and the night sky was neatly scattered with precise pinpoint designs instead of huge, glaring, intermingling white blurs. I wonder if it was then that my dreams began for the first time to open up and reveal stunning new vistas, worlds beyond worlds and worlds within worlds. My previous childhood dreams of being threatened by wolves or finding myself waist-deep in snake pits, gave way to a recurring dream of mirrored lakes, which, if I laid on the ground and, and looked sideways in a special way, revealed their hidden depths, teeming with tropical fish. In those dreams, I used to plead with everyone to look at the water in my special way. I would ask them to take my sideways look at the magnificence that thrived below the surface of an English lake 
where the presence of tropical fish to the uninitiated was merely a ridiculous fantasy. No one ever looked. As a dream analyst, I understand that I was a child needing to feel special and loved for who I was underneath the surface. I was also a child interested in exploring both my personal depths and the depths of meaning in the world around me. My dreams introduced me to myself. They gave me eyesight. Meanwhile, my short sight became a blessing, enabling me to see different perspectives and to have faith that what might seem confusing one day could leap into clear focus the next. Through short sight and through eyesight, I learned insight. I learned to see within. Mindful magic. There's a magical beach a couple of hours drive from where Michael and I lived in Brisbane, where time stands still and gentle winds whisper profound wisdom. If the wind is salty and onshore, the magic begins the moment I step out of the car. There are barbecue pits dotting the grass at the top of the cliff, and if they're in use and sizzling, there's often a a tang of ketchup on the air. First I notice the air, the salt, or the ketchup. Then I notice the quality of light reflected on the sea, which is different with each visit. Next comes the music of the waves, the heard and felt crunch of shells underfoot, the rough, sometimes too slippery surfaces of the rocks and boulders as I carefully make my way closer to the ocean's edge. At this point, my focus needs to be sharp and I really need to watch the placement of my feet and the balance or imbalance of my body as I negotiate my path to avoid slipping and falling. I'm vibrantly tuned into my proprioceptive sense. There's no place for multitasking here. And watching my every footfall, my eyes become attuned to the tiny shellfish temporarily marooned in the crevices. Then, ah, here at last, the shallow rock pools, all crystal water darting with tiny crabs, dancing with fine seaweed and jewelled with minuscule coral sculptures. I sit down to look more deeply into the rock pools and see an even greater diversity and abundance of life within. Seagulls call, waves crash, a sun-blessed breeze skips across my skin, time stands still, and that profound wisdom whispers. I have always left that particular beach with with greater clarity and insight than I had when I arrived there. I'm sure it's not the only magical beach in the world, and I'm sure you've had similar experiences in different special places. I used to wonder about the source of the magic. Was there an ancient or divine healing energy about this beach? Or was it simply the magic of my having stepped away from every day thereby opening myself up to new perspectives? Or was it, as I suspect, a mindfulness effect? As each sense is more finely and acutely drawn to focus on the rich details, as the big picture of the beach gives way to the touch and feel of the rocks, which in turn reveal the rock pools that open into tiny worlds invisible from the cliff tops. I undertake an exercise in mindfulness. Immersed in mindfulness, time stands still. Or we enter the timeless flow, whichever way you want to wrap words around it. At that point, we are open to profound wisdom, whether whispered by the gentle winds or by a renewed connection to the inner self. When we deeply explore a dream, stepping through it mindfully, focus first on the overview, the big chunks, then the details, then the details within the details, and then into the minutiae, suddenly whole new perspectives spring into view, teeming with life and dynamics previously unseen, worlds within worlds, our inner world, our inner self.
Some of the many aspects of our inner self may seem beautiful at first glance. Others may be dark and shadowy or scary, but comforting when acknowledged, understood, embraced and integrated. The gentle wind whispers its profound wisdom and we awaken. Camouflage and the facts of life. I was looking through the window, settling into writing mode, while watching the play of sunlight and shade move across a particularly beautiful rock, when I realised that part of the rock wasn't rock at all. It was a large, sunbathing, frilled lizard. I tried shifting my gaze in an effort to blend him back into the rock, but I couldn't do it. He was camouflaged one instant, revealed forever the next my world shifted. The rock-solid fact of the rock was shattered in an instant. What I had known to be true was no longer true, and there was no going back to the old way of seeing and and believing. Yes, it was only a rock. Yes, it was only a frilled lizard. But it's a true story, or at least it is until the next unexpected revelation. Look there! I imagine saying to someone, there, on the rock, it's a frilled lizard. And some will see it, and some won't. Camouflage is a good trick, finely honed by nature to protect through deception. The lizard has scuttled away now, and the rock itself will never be the same again in my personal little world, because I'll always see it now as the lizard rock and the rock that found its way into this story. And so things change. I was at a party the previous weekend where a group of us were enjoying a a free-ranging conversation when someone piped up, but what are the facts? I'm only interested in the facts. This kind of thinking always reminds me of butter and margarine. When I was a child, Butter was suddenly declared unhealthy due to its saturated fats. We switched to margarine, a healthy choice based on science, we believed. A few years later, margarine was declared unhealthy due to many factors and we switched back to butter. You know the story. This back and forth happens all the time now and not only in matters of health and nutrition. If I were to dream of butter or margarine, I'd probably be processing dilemmas around perception, what and who to believe. In fact, the fact is, many facts change, and facts can get us into as much trouble as they can help us out. One of the most enlightening fact-finding missions you can embark upon is to explore your dreams. Your dreams don't yield universal facts. They yield personal facts. Your personal beliefs about the world based on your experience of it. Best of all, your dreams yield your unconscious personal beliefs, the facts of life that unconsciously drive the way you see your life and the way you live it. Discovering your personal unconscious facts of life helps you to understand why you see life the way you do, why you respond to life the way you do, why you experience life the way you do. Once you become aware of your unconscious facts of life, the camouflage drops away and you see yourself and your life in a new way. You may feel, looking back, that you've been deceived by those unconscious beliefs. Yes, yes and yes, but be kind to yourself because you put them in place to protect yourself from dangers that once felt real. As I said earlier, camouflage is a good trick, finely honed by nature to protect through deception. Tell me a story. As the wonderful mysteries of life and twists of fate would have it, I lost my voice on the very morning that I set aside to write this. Yes, you're correct. (laughs) I don't need a speaking voice to write. 
but the subject I had already chosen was how to give voice to an intriguing dream symbol. If you've guessed I'm going to write about undertaking a dream dialogue, no, I'm not. This fun and deeply insightful exercise is about giving the microphone over to a dream symbol and asking it to tell the whole dream story from its unique point of view. So that's the recipe in a nutshell. I'm about to illustrate this with an example and, and get into the reasons why this kind of exercise can be so helpfully revealing and potentially life transforming. But first, let's go back in time to last week. Tell me another story about when you were little, implored my granddaughter Isabel, indulging in the favourite game we always played together on long car journeys. When I was a little girl, about six or seven, about your age, I began. Typically, I would add new elements whenever I retold a story, as well as surprise details and shifty perspectives. Partly that's for me, I confess. I do this to keep the story interesting and alive by weaving in different threads rather than telling my childhood stories rote for the thousandth time. But it's also to gently impart the art of storytelling and to show that nothing is set in stone. I do it to reinforce the idea that views can shift, perspectives can change, and a seemingly familiar story can lead to quite a different ending and message. We have our set stories for those car journeys. The story of how I got my first pair of glasses, the story of my junior school in England, the, the first in the area to have its own swimming pool despite being in an underprivileged part of town, the story of how I nearly drowned during my first swimming lesson, the story of how I was caught out writing a story in class instead of listening to the teacher. And the story of the wolf that Dad brought home one Saturday more afternoon. With each retelling, there is a slight shift in emphasis, a subtlety of deliverable. The marathon telling of stories during some dry throat cold winter days last week probably contributed to my later loss of voice but they also contributed to the idea I'm sharing now. The fun exploration of a dream, as told from the point of view of a dream symbol or dream character. In the past weeks, I've been using my voice more than usual, presenting at a corporate gig and doing additional radio gigs in the same week as a television appearance and squeezing in extra phone sessions with clients. And then again, two days ago, when I used my voice in several hours of voice project projection, when we filmed almost all the videos for one of my online courses at the Dream Academy. The next day, yesterday as I write this, <laughs> I woke up with only a whisper of a voice. The last bit of filming had been postponed to the next weekend, clients had been rescheduled and a radio gig had been cancelled. I'm listening to my body as if I had any real choice, and I'm resting my spoken voice. Aside from writing, I'm communicating in different ways, largely through body language and miming. In so doing, I'm experiencing interesting perceptive perspective shifts, which brings me back to the dream exercise I have for you to enjoy. It's a writing exercise, so get out your pen and pad, pad, pad and pen. <laughs> the formula is simple. Retell a whole dream from the point of view of one of the dream symbols or one of its dream characters. Give yourself creative freedom. Let it flow and write fast. If you slow down the process, you'll bring in too much of your conscious mind and you'll edit out the powerful information the dream symbol can deliver. Your aim is to let your unconscious mind take the reins, to silence your conscious voice to silence the main dream character, that's the one that you experience as you in the dream, and let another aspect of the dream story speak. Everyone and everything in a dream represents something about the dreamer. So when you give that dream symbol or dream character the freedom to speak up, 
you discover a different but important aspect of yourself that helps you to understand your current situation. For example, you might dream of going to the station to catch a train only to realise you're on the wrong platform and you see your train departing without you. Your dream story, as seen through your eyes, is that you missed your train because you were on the wrong platform. Let's listen to the story from the train's point of view, (laughs) which might be, I've always travelled this way. It's easy. Just follow the tracks someone laid down for me ages ago. Don't need to look. Don't need to listen. Just need to stop when I see a red light and go when I see a green light. It's quite automated, really. Don't question where I'm going. I see you over there on the other platform, looking perplexed. You're welcome to come with me. Surely you know my route by now, which platform to come to. Am I heading where you want to be? Seems not. In this example, the dreamer might reassess her perspective. Does she want to head down a track laid out long ago? Or is she ready for a a different destination or approach? What might be the right platform for her? And how might she signal her desire to move in that direction? As you can see, this exercise helps shift perspective through gifting new questions posed from a different angle of your being. It's also a wonderful exercise to develop and extend your imagination and creativity Perfect for those days when you feel blocked. Try it and see. Charlie's bone. A dog named Charlie sees a meaty bone tantalisingly just out of reach on the grass on the other side of a high wire fence. The aroma twitches his nose, moistens his mouth and fixes his eyes on the tasty prize. The only problem is the fence between where he is now and where he wants to be. It's too high to jump, too solid to squeeze through. What's the solution? Hours pass and Charlie sits in his garden, totally focused on the bone. You could say he spends the morning visualising gnawing the bone, imagining how it would taste, how happy he'd be. That's true. But he's also focused on that drat fence, occasionally trying to burrow beneath it, lunge at it, or poke his nose through it. Each time he makes such an attempt, he feels nothing but its unrelenting resistance barring his way to where he wants to be. What's the tasty bone you've been visualising in your life recently? What's the fence? Have you been spending as much time and energy visualising the fence as you have visualising the bone? Which do you think will manifest, getting the bone or strengthening the resistance of the fence? Does this little story resonate with your heart? Does it feel right? Or do you find your head analysing the analogy, picking holes in it? Legends, myths, fairy tales and parables are lovingly passed down from generation to generation because they offer insights and solutions from the safety zone of fiction. A story does not judge the listener or reader or tell them what to do. If the listener or reader resonates with the story, inner shifts begin. If she doesn't, it isn't the right story for her current predicament. An analogy works best if it's not too close to home or if it involves another species apart from human. Think about Disney and Pixar movies that feature animals. (laughs) Why is this? Well, you're not a dog and you probably gag at the thought of eating a raw bone. Yet maybe you resonated at some level with my simple little story about Charlie. In fact, the story may have a deeper impact on you than a realistic story featuring someone like you in your exact predicament. The more the details resemble your life, the harder it is for you to see solutions because you start to lock into the way you see your life 
with all your familiar fences, obstacles and problems included. Your blind spots engage and your comfort zone prevails. But when the story takes you away from the life you know and gets you to look through the eyes of, say, a dog, you are suspended from your attachment to your own ego long enough to see new possibilities. I might have told a different analogy involving Charlie the dog. How about the one where Charlie focuses so intently on the fence that he realises it's nothing but a myriad atoms floating in space, merely presenting the impression of solidity, so he just walks through it. Or how about the one where Charlie's frustration with the fence makes him bark louder than ever before, so that a passing stranger hears his cry for help and tosses him the bone. Analogies are full of holes. Tiny atoms of storytelling breath suspended in voids big enough to step through them. But isn't that the point? Aren't analogies simply vehicles to transport you to the next... Mm, anyone spot an analogy coming? Dreams can be seen as analogies. As noted previously, dreams reflect the last 24 to 48 hours of your conscious and unconscious experiences, then compare these to your past experiences, update your personal worldview, and project forward based on this blueprint of your expectations. The resulting dream, encompassing all this stuff, is mostly a production of your creative right brain. Left brain logic doesn't get a look in. Approach a dream as an analogy of your current mindset and you're well on your way to an accurate interpretation of it. For example, you dream of being lost, unable to find your way. Where in the last two days did you feel lost at some level, emotionally, intellectually or spiritually? Or you dream of being bogged down in mud, where, in the last two days, did you feel, at some level, bogged down? Or you dream of seeing a tasty reward out of reach on the other side of a tall fence? Where, in the last two days, did you feel blocked from attaining something rewarding? When you interpret a dream, identifying the analogy is a good starting point. It helps you to relate your dream to the waking life situation it applies to. When you then move on to interpret the details, you uncover how your mindset is affecting your life experiences and flesh out, oh that bone again, personal meaning. Just as analogies can be full of holes, dreams, being analogies, can reveal the holes in the way you look at your life. And just as analogies can inspire insights and solutions to problems, dreams, being analogies, can do this too. And just as the best legends, myths, fairy tales and Disney produ productions are analogies whipped up into spellbinding stories, you can whip your dreams up into spellbinding dream alchemy practices. Simply write an inspirational dream as a children's story or rewrite a dream that reveals a personal limitation as a story, children's story with a happy ending instead of a limitation. If you resonated with Charlie, spin some magic right now by writing a one-page children's story about how Charlie finally got his bone. The magic will filter through to your own situation. Next chapter, Clover, Trifolium Repens. I stepped to one side to allow him to pass at the exact same moment that he grabbed my arm and the snowy ledge beneath me gave way and thundered down the mountainside. He saved my life. Lucky. I knew a four-leaf clover was meant to be lucky and I wanted to find one. So I looked and I looked. I wouldn't call my search obsessive, <laughs> but whenever I noticed a clover patch and had some time, I'd get down on my hands and knees 
and get lost in the search. There was always just one more clump, one more stem to trace my ten-year-old fingers around. Did I expect to find a four-leaf clover? I don't know. I did find that sense of timelessness that a repetitive task can open up. A doorway into daydreaming. A stepping away from the everyday. In daydreaming there was a stillness that I would later recognise as the core of my being. My search for the four-leaf clover was also a training in discipline, in focus, maybe even in alchemy. Might my dedication alone be enough to transform base metal into gold, the existence of a three-leaf clover into a four-leaf one? One day, exploring a patch of clover outside the library on my way home from school, there it was! (laughs) Not just one, but a whole clump of four-leaf clover. I picked one to press between the pages of a book. There was no need to search any more, I was indeed lucky. Or was I? If I had been really lucky, I would have found a four-leaf clover on my first search, or someone would have given me one, or one would have dropped from the sky into my hand. Anyone who put as much work into searching as I had might eventually have been lucky too. Mum always said I was lucky though she didn't phrase it as a good thing. The trouble with Jane is she's so lucky. She always lands on her feet, she said. So I grew up wondering whether it was bad luck to be lucky, whether apparent luck or good fortune prevented me from learning the valuable lessons of failure or hard work, the essence of planning and preparation, or the positives of delayed gratification. Yet though I have probably experienced failure and hard work in equal measure to success and ease, I can see that I have experienced extraordinary events that might be labelled luck. In my very early 20s, I was introduced to mountain climbing. There are some 282 mountains in Scotland that are more than 3,000 feet high. These are known as the Munros. Some of my friends were caught up in Munro bagging, which means bagging or climbing as many Munros as you can. I enjoyed a a smell-the-roses kind of summer climb, but I pushed myself to participate in the more difficult snowy winter climbs, partly for the challenge and partly to be with my friends. I was scared just about every step of the way on those snowy climbs. I never felt strong in my footing, and it was well known that many people lost their lives on those mountains. I think I I had bagged some 25 Munros before the snowy day I set out with friends to climb the Cobbler, a relatively easy climb. I had the right gear, from my tweed breeches and proper climbing boots, all waterproofed with dubbin, to my crampons and ice axe. We'd probably been climbing for a couple of hours, and were about to ascend the last bit. I did as I was instructed and stepped into the footholds that the person in front of me had kicked into the icy snow. Suddenly I was slipping, sliding, falling, trying to remember what I was supposed to do with my ice axe, then getting freaked out that I might land on the sharp pick. So I let it go and went into free fall, which wasn't a totally vertical fall. I hit the ice, rebounded into the air, fell, hit the ice, rebounded again, and so on for what seemed like a very long time. I remember wondering why my life wasn't flashing before me. I had the bizarre thought that I needn't have eaten the Mars bar I had just consumed to give me the energy burst to get to the summit of the peak. I thought I should do something to stop myself from falling, but I couldn't work out what that might be. As I fell, I had a strong feeling that I would have two children and a number of other flashes of future possibilities, rather than flashes of a life gone by, impressed themselves on my now quite calm mind. I began to try to claw my woollen mitten hands into the snow whenever I contacted it, but couldn't gain purchase. Just as I gave up, or did I surrender? 
I hit a mound of soft snow that stopped my descent. I laid, spread eagle, face down in the snow, in awe. I had survived. After a few seconds, I realised that my friends might think I was dead, so I sat up and waved. Two scrambled down and sat with me while we waited for the others to get to the top and meet us on the way down. We celebrated our climb in the pub on the way home and it was only on leaving it that my limbs began to stiffen up and I realised I'd lost one of my contact lenses. We checked in at the hospital when we got back to Glasgow and I was declared very lucky to have come out of my fall so lightly. I hadn't, as mum might have said, landed on my feet, but I did land on my belly and that was lucky enough in soft snow. Face the fear, come out again with us next week, weekend, said my friends. I knew they were right, so I said yes, then worried about it all week. This time we were to climb Ben Hope. The name was encouraging, <laughs> so off we set. I knew I had been unprepared the previous week. It's one thing to carry an ice axe. It's another to be calm enough to remember how to use it when you fall. I brushed up on my technique and our climb began. Halfway up, thick mist descended. I could see the person in front, just. Someone shouted that we were almost at the summit and that a small party was coming down and then we could ascend and have our moment of glory. I was stepping into the footsteps of the person in front when I saw the first of the descent party coming down the exact same track. I stepped to one side to allow him to pass at the same moment that he grabbed my arm and the snowy ledge beneath me gave way and thundered down the mountainside. He saved my life. I had seen the mountain from halfway up before the mist set in and thought it was rounded at the top. It wasn't. I had stood on a cornice made only of ice, not strong enough to bear a person's weight. No, I didn't attempt the last few feet to celebrate at the summit. It was all I could do to sit in the safe spot in the snow to which I had been guided and vow that I would never move from there for the rest of my life. Was I lucky? Yes. Was I stupidly unprepared? Yes. But I didn't know that. One of the lessons I learned was that we don't know what we don't know. I also learned that bagging 25 Munros was enough for me and that I would pursue the more gentle exercise and art of going on wild flower hunts with the occasional aside of a bit of bird watching. Does my dream mean bad luck? As a dream analyst, I often appear on radio shows where I interpret dreams for the listeners who call in. Mike was one such caller. I dreamed I was jousting on horseback and my opponent stabbed me in the chest with his lance. I fell out of the bed with the impact, he told me laughing. What does it mean? Am I going to have bad luck? As Mike was telling me his dream, I was reminded of Alfred Maury, a 19th century French scholar and physician who famously dreamed he was caught up in the French Revolution. His dream was long and complex, and in the closing sequence, he was led to the guillotine to be executed. He heard the blade coming down, felt it touch the back of his neck, and saw his head roll. And at that exact moment, the headboard of his bed came crashing down onto the back of his neck and woke him up. On the basis of this experience, Mori argued that dreams are instantaneous and often related to external stimuli. He believed the pain of the headboard hitting his neck created the whole dream in a flash. His theory about dreams being instantaneous has since been disproved. Dreams are known to occur in real time. You may dream that you fly to the moon, 
But think of your dreams as using similar techniques as movies, capturing the story and the feeling of a long journey in several minutes of cleverly cut footage. Mike wasn't pushed out of bed by an errant bedpost or, as far as we know, by an elbow in the chest from his wife or by a sudden internal painful sensation such as heartburn or panic. External stimuli, as we know, can and do work their way into a dream already in progress. Mike's dream was symbolic, and the reason he fell out of bed when the dream lance plunged into his chest was most likely because the shock of the dream event began to wake up his physical body. Usually when we sleep, our motor nerves are inhibited to prevent us from moving and acting out our dreams. As we begin to wake up, we break through this REM, rapid eye movement, atony, and our mobility returns. Let's get back to the aspect of dreams that I find compelling and interesting. Why did Mike have his dream and what does it mean? Mike and his wife lived near a castle and they had attended a medieval reenactment jousting tournament the day before the dream. However, they had been to the same event in previous years, so why dream about it this time? And why such a dramatic dream? This year, there was something about the jousting that resonated at a deeper emotional level within Mike. It struck a chord and his dreaming mind got to work on it. How did you feel in the dream? I asked Mike. His humour kicked in. Like I was at the pointy end of a stick. His unconscious mind had spoken loud and clear. In the day or two before the dream, I said, was there a situation where you felt you were at the pointy end of a stick? Dreams, especially those which occur to those blessed with a sense of verbal humour or who enjoy wordplay, often portray visual cliches. Look for them in dreams, giggle (laughs) and then be enlightened. We only had a few minutes to talk about his dream as this was breakfast radio. Does my dream mean bad luck? asked Mike, no doubt picturing more of that pointy end of the stick feeling in days to come. No, it's not the job of dreams to preview good or bad luck. As articulated earlier in this book, a dream's job is to process our experiences, compare them to our past experiences and beliefs about life and update our beliefs accordingly. A dream's job is to help us make sense of our world based on our personal experiences. Mike's job was to understand what his dream revealed about his mindset and decide whether that mindset was going to serve him well. How did he normally respond when he felt like he was on the pointy end of the stick in life? Did he fight back? Defend himself? Go into attack mode? or withdraw into his armour? How had these responses worked for him? Why did he respond in these ways? Why did he feel vulnerable? Might there be better ways to handle conflict, like negotiation or a heart-to-heart talk, depending on the circumstances? If we'd had an hour to explore his dream and his life, we would have found the answers to these questions we would have discovered insights and solutions, and we would have applied dream alchemy to reprogram his mindset if required. Whether you see life as dealing you good or bad luck, it's how you respond and handle it that makes a difference. I said to Mike, your dream can help you understand how you deal with the conflict and find ways that get better results all round. Mike's humour kicked in again. My wife doesn't fancy me wearing armour. Now, that's a good thought to take forward. Maybe a more open-hearted approach is called for. Next chapter, Snapdragon, Antirhinum. I learned a gardening lesson and a spiritual lesson that took decades to come into full fruition. Bunny rabbits. I'm typically met by blank looks when I talk about the bunny rabbits I grew in my garden when I was about five. 
These blank looks invariably give way to raised eyebrows and wide eyes when I talk about the fun of squeezing the bunny rabbit's flowers to make them open their mouths. You might know antirhinums as snapdragons. Where I grew up in Hampshire, England, they were called bunny rabbits. Mum dug a patch of earth outside the kitchen door and bordered it with timber. It was probably about a metre square. My sister Dawn, two years younger than me, had the right-hand side of the patch for her garden, and mine was the left. Under supervision, or not, (laughs) we sowed seeds, watered them, watched our flowers grow, and played at getting our bunny rabbits to chat with each other. Having our gardens attend was a wonderful idea and something we really enjoyed. I'll never forget the time, Mum used to tell me, when you transplanted all Dad's tomato plants and I transplanted them back again. He always did wonder why his tomatoes didn't fruit that year. I have no memory of the tomato plant episode and I also have no memory of the anti-Rhinum story that Mum recounted so often that it registered as one of life's biggest lessons. Apparently, Dawn got upset with me for some reason that Mum couldn't recall. Enraged, Dawn took a pair of scissors and cut all the flowers off my bunny rabbits. A few weeks passed and my bunny rabbits responded by offering the most glorious profusion of blossoms, a sharp contrast to their cousins on the other side of the patch. I learned a gardening lesson, the value of pruning, and a spiritual lesson about healing that took decades to come to full fruition. Ant of the Round Table While having a cheese sandwich outdoors, back in the days when I ate bread and dairy, (laughs) I noticed an ant walking around the rim of the table, the round table I was seated at. Round and round and round and round it walked in a never-ending circle. Why do you think it did this? Was this a good thing or a bad thing? It got me thinking, that little ant. What do you think of ants? Are they industrious? Or perhaps altruistic, working for the common good of their community? Maybe they're capable of carrying huge burdens. Are they undermining? Destructive? Irritating? Biting? If you were that ant walking round and round that table rim, what might be going through your mind? If you do not first succeed, try, try and try again, flashed into my mind as I took another bite of my cheese sandwich. It was a spider, not an ant, which inspired the 14th century Scottish king, Robert the Bruce, to come up with that one. As legend legend had it, the king was holed up in an old hut following yet another defeat in battle. One day he watched a spider trying to build a web between two beams. Five times in a row, the spider spun a long thread and tried to attach it to the second beam. And five times in a row, she failed. And five times the English have defeated me in battle, the king thought. At that, the spider spun a new thread and tried again. And this time she succeeded and inspired Robert the Bruce to go to battle one more time. And that's how the famous Battle of Bannockburn was won. Not that the spider knew anything about her role in changing the future of Scotland. Neither did she know, when she set out to weave her web, that she would be immortalised in British poems and textbooks and inspire millions of people to try, try and try again for at least the next 700 years. Ah, little ant, I thought. Maybe the same old path is getting you the same old results. To succeed, maybe you need to get off the treadmill. At that thought, the ant promptly took a right turn and marched off down the table leg. Who knows where his new adventure will take him. I finished my lunch, went back to my computer and investigated a new adventure. In waking life and in dreams, what we see is our own reflection. Where synchronicity leads... In a dream back in 2018, I pulled a very long hair from my nose. 
It was metres long, seemingly unending. And when I did finally yank it free, the pain woke me up. We'll get to the dream and what it meant in a moment, but I must first share with you my story of driving home from yoga the evening after I had the dream. During class, I mentioned to the instructor that an operation I had some 20 years prior to remove a piece of broken bone from my right knee prevented me from doing a a hands-free pose called King Pigeon on that side, a pose I could do quite reasonably on my left. I've believed for quite a while that my knee limited me from doing this pose. But as I thought about it at that moment in class, it didn't make anatomical sense. Surely it was my right hip that needed to open a little more to give me that extra vital couple of centimetres I needed to get into the pose so that I could lift my arms and be hands-free. As I was driving home, I was thinking about this. The hip and the knee worked together, so it might be possible that the aftermath of the knee operation had tightened my hip. At that moment, in slow traffic, I noticed the car with a personalised licence plate in the oncoming traffic. It read hip, knee, H-I-P, capital K-N-E-E, hip, knee. What are the chances of that? It was a marvellous synchronicity and one that had me delving deeper into the connection between my knee and my hip while overflowing with a mystical sense of meaningfulness that always accompanies a synchronistic event when it occurs. Yes, we'll come to the dream about pulling the hair from my nose and what it means, but first we must meander on with the synchronistic story of the hip and the knee. I approach synchronicity as a reflection of a stirring within my unconscious, something beginning to rise into consciousness, to be known and acknowledged. In this way, synchronicity can also be seen as a waking dream, playing out more in the language of the unconscious than in the everyday language of waking reality. You might also say that synchronicity is a nudge from the divine. My personal story about my knee does actually begin with my hip. I was about nine or ten years old, playing with friends in out-of-bounds territory (laughs) when I decided to walk along the top of a high wooden fence hands-free. I fell badly and gashed my right hip against a rough-barked, gnarly tree. This got me into all sorts of trouble with my father back home and I walked with a bit of a limp afterwards because of the pain. My mother had her reasons for not taking me to see a doctor or get an x-ray. After three months, the pain stopped and my gait returned to normal, or so I thought. Some 30 years, 30 plus years later, I suddenly had sharp pains in my knee. It turned out that a tiny piece of bone that had been broken, the hospital estimated some 30 plus years ago, had dislodged and was trapped under my kneecap, causing the now quite excruciating pain. The knee operation was to remove the piece of bone that had probably broken when I'd fallen from the fence all those years ago. The hip-knee license plate reminded me that my injury was to both the hip and the knee, and connected me to a time when I was in trouble for attempting a hands-free challenge beyond permitted territory. No wonder my body doesn't open to doing that particular hands-free yoga pose. It probably engages both my hip and my knee in a way that reminds my body-mind of that painful fall. The synchronicity resolved the anatomical puzzle and shed light on the underlying body-mind dynamics I was experiencing. I'm excited to see if this new awareness translates into my being able to ease my way into that yoga pose now. So let's return to the dream I had about plucking metres of a seemingly endless hair hair from my nose. In the dream, the longer version, I had climbed a neighbour's fence, a rather wobbly fence, but I didn't fall. You know, there are some things I'll never be able to do, I said to the neighbour, and she looked surprised. The dream scene shifted indoors, 
and I became aware of the hair tickling my nose and already dangling a metre or so. I pulled on it, and as it came out, it seemed endless. Eventually, I plucked it free, and it really hurt. You'll have noticed the dream references to the fence, the neighbour, and the limitation, echoing the event of my childhood, wherein I'd climbed and fallen off the neighbour's fence. I had left the dream to one side to interpret later, but it had begun to percolate in the back of my mind, and it would have been continuing to do this during the yoga class. The pieces began to fall into place as I questioned my solid knowing about my knee's limitation during the class, and then followed the synchronicity during the drive home to the new knowing about my hip. And then, ultimately, the knowing I got from looking back to my childhood fall and remembering the trouble that ensued. The dream came up because I had been learning some new business skills. And learning often requires first unlearning what we think we know. In my dream, I needed to let go of an attachment to a knowing that had been with me seemingly forever and that actually stretched back to that childhood accident. It was a complicated knowing about the potential fallout from taking certain risks. I'm giving you clues, left, right and centre here. Why did my dreaming mind picture the attachment to a certain knowing as a hair attached deep in my nose? Because I'm a writer, my dreams love wordplay. And nose, N-O-S-E, sounds like nose, K-N-O-W-S. In my childhood, people where I grew up would often say, I knows, rather than I know. It was part of the local vernacular. They would also tap the side of their nose to indicate what they knows, or point to their eye, then their nose to signify I knows. In my dream, it hurt when the hair was pulled out because it was attached to the inside of my nose. The hair symbolised an attachment to knowledge I gained during my childhood and knowing that I have now released to leave space for new and wiser knowing. Letting go of any painful attack, <laughs> letting go of any attachment is painful. I'm glad it's done. And I'm very grateful to my dream for offering me insight and for synchronicity for stepping in when I was being a bit slow coming up with the correct interpretation of what was going on. Growing and flowing in life is very much about unlearning what we think we know and discovering wiser knowing. Our dreams, as well as the occasional synchronicity, are here to help us do that. As a postscript to this story, a year later, in early 2019, I fell down some unfamiliar stairs and fractured my right femur femur near my knee. It was a small fracture, but a very painful one, and it stopped me from walking. Although the fracture was to my femur, most of the pain was felt in my knee. When I reflected on this, I realised the connection. We had just relocated to Hobart, Tasmania, after living in Brisbane, Queensland, for 24 years, when I had the fall. I had planned to pick up the first draft of this book as soon as we moved into a house and begin polishing it. The fall delayed my project, as my spare time was taken up by the healing journey that was necessary for me to be able to walk again. Now you are reading this finished book, And if you've read my previous books, you may have noticed that the style of this book is quite different from the style I employed in the earlier books. At some level, at least unconsciously, I saw polishing and publishing this book as a big risk. Going out on a limb, perhaps, just as I did as a nine or ten year old child, climbing that fence and falling onto the bough of a tree. My 2019 fall and fracture gave me time to reflect, settle into our new home and shore up my foundations before venturing out on this new writing endeavour with more confidence. Isn't it magical how symbols reappear and echo throughout the years? 
helping us to make connections that move us forward. Be alert to this in your own life and expect to be pleasantly surprised when you find this happening to you. And that is the end of part five. Thank you for listening to part five of Bird of Paradise. The next instalment, part six, will be released as episode 271, (laughs) which will come out on the 13th of July, 2023, if you're listening to this in real time. Remember, you can buy the paperback or digital version, Bird of Paradise, wherever you usually buy your books, or look under Books on the menu on my website at janetheresa.com. janetheresa.com is also where you can go to discover my other books and courses, as well as to consult me privately. And janetheresa.com is also where you can go to listen back through all previous episodes of The Dream Show. If you're keen to listen to guests exploring their dreams with me, go to episode 265 and work back from there. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of The Dream Show. I'm Jane Teresa Anderson. Bye.